Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bonus time at the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's someday, and as you're listening, it's a different day. That's how we do it when we record things. My guest in the studio a legend yes indeed i'm gonna have my guest introduce herself so introduce yourself guest coming at you <laughs> Susanna mendoza your state controller all right and that means what d it's time for a little segment that we call wait maybe hold on i'll edit this don't worry guys The Mendoza Report. Yes, indeed. Uh, When I told Susanna she was going to have to introduce herself, she goes, wait a minute. What about Mendoza Report? Back in the old days, uh, when I was on the radio before they uh, ceremoniously kicked me off, uh, Susanna Mendoza would come on from time to time and uh, give us updates on the budget because in those days, we had a governor named Bruce Rauner who had a very interesting philosophy when it came to government. Uh, Susanna. Yay for our teachers! (laughs) Yay for our teachers! Yeah, that guy. Uh, His attitude was the way... just got sick. Yeah. (laughs) He just brought back memories. His attitude about government, the best way to run government is to bankrupt it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Susanna would come on from time to time uh, to explain uh, our financial state. And so I thought um, it would be a good idea to bring her back after uh, what's we had just had a session where a budget was approved and various big initiatives were passed by the uh, uh, legislature and signed by uh, Governor Pritzker to get sort of a state of the state. And then, uh, you know, you get Susanna Mendoza in the studio, may ask a political question or two about our presidential race that's uh, getting fascinating. Um, and I think it's too late for you to run in 2020, Susanna. <laughs> Susanna Mendoza running for governor. Uh, president. No. Just kidding. All right. All right. So let's talk about the state of the state. Uh, Susanna is the, they just passed a budget. Is the budget really balanced? So the budget is balanced according to paper, right? I mean, which, you know, there's, there's a way to differentiate this. I mean, I would say this is absolutely the most truly balanced budget we've had in a long time. Having said that, I can't really call anything truly balanced while we still have a bill backlog of $6.2 billion. Now, technically, the budget is balanced because um, the law does not require us to take into account that tremendous debt that has yet to be paid down. But, you know, from my perspective as a controller, I'd say this was an incredibly great step in the right direction. But my job is to remind everybody that we still have $6.2 billion Um, on any given day. It's anywhere between six and seven that um, is not going to pay itself. We have Mm -hmm. to pay it down. Now, when you remind this governor about things like this, what is his, uh, Pritzker, that is, what's his response? Well, he's super responsible about it. I mean, he recognizes that it's there. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't, most importantly, add to it, right, which is what this other governor did. He more than tripled the bill backlog that he inherited. I mean, I I said many times that, you know, Governor Rauner did not create the mess that he inherited, but he certainly magnified it and multiplied it at, you know, ridiculous proportions. So he took a 5.03 backlog of unemployment billion, I should say, a a backlog of unpaid bills and more than tripled it to what ended up being 16.7 in just two years at $16.7 billion. And thankfully we were able to, you know, fight him on that tooth and nail. And you remember I was 
working very hard to to put enough pressure on him to do a bonding deal that would allow us to pay three and a half percent instead of twelve percent interest on bill, billions of dollars that we were on the hook for. Um, and uh, we got that done, and we saved taxpayers four to six billion dollars. But even after all of that, and putting that money straight into paying old bills incurred prior to July first of two thousand seventeen, we still have about a six point two billion dollar mm. bill backlog today. And and some of that is generating interest payments at that twelve percent. So you know, my desire is to whatever new revenues come in, uh, target them to paying down any bills that are incurring late payment interest penalties. Now, how do you get the bill backlog? $6.2 billion is a lot of money. Even uh, it's a lot of money in government money. Sure. How do you get that down? So uh, working with Governor Pritzker uh, and the legislature, they approved an additional $1.2 billion of bonding authority for me. Uh, and I don't know that I'll need to use it right away or even that I will use it, but to have it there is helpful tool. I will only use bonding authority when it saves us money, which is contrary to how other people have used bonding authority in the past. That $6 billion bonding authority that I fought so hard for, in effect, saved taxpayers 4 to $6 billion by doing it because we were able to cut down our interest payments to 3.5% instead of 12%. And that's just, and when you're talking about billions of dollars in debt, um, over a 12-year loan, that's billions of dollars in savings. So um, we still have, like I said, that 6.7. Governor Pritzker gave us, with the legislature, an additional $1.2 billion bonding authority. Um, but... To that point, just yesterday, Governor Pritzker, myself, and Treasurer Fricks got sued by one of Governor Rauner's best pals and one of his key advisors. You know the name. What is it? Illinois Policy Institute. Yep. And John Tillman. Way oh, to go. Yeah. John Tillman and, you know, one of these, uh, like a hedge fund manager, essentially, uh, turned around and sued us and wanted us to not spend the money that we've already spent, actually, on paying down the bill backlog, the bonding authorization from uh, 2017 in 2003, all of which those funds have already been spent. And like I said, I mean, the fact that I spent that money actually saved us four to $6 billion. So this is the most ridiculous, absurd lawsuit. And it's really just meant to scare the markets that, ooh, you know, there's financial instability in Illinois, when in fact, we're actually riding the ship that they tried to crash into like the worst iceberg. Well, if they get their way, what will it? They won't get their way. I mean, seriously, they will not get their way. I never comment on pending litigation just by policy, but this, this paper is not worth worthy of the ink that's printed on it. I'd tell them to go use that paper for something else, frankly. All right. You hear that John Tillman? I once gave John Tillman a, a crash course lecture on tips, but I'll, that's a story for it's such a time. frivolous lawsuit. And it, it does it, you know, people say, Oh, you know, Mendoza sounds angry. Well, yeah, I am because, you know, I think about all of the, th- you know, the thousands of, of businesses that were impacted by Bruce Rauner's fiscal irresponsibility, the millions of people who lost access to critical safety net services, the fact that we made so many providers and businesses unwilling lenders to the state of Illinois, you know, that 16.7 is not a blip. It's not a number on a spreadsheet. Those are real people's lives. And so, yeah, I take it personally. And this guy was partly responsible for that. So 
That's why I am upset. Well, there's a larger fight. I have a whole bunch of things I want to talk about, but I'm going to put this one, uh, since we're, it's a natural transition, there's a larger political fight that's been ongoing that's left over from the Rauner days. It's sort of a fight against people who uh, want to uh, shrink government or bankrupt government. Uh, it depends on your interpretation of it. Uh, and uh, those people who want to finance government, and this gets at the heart of the fair tax issue. Uh, government needs money if it's going to operate, Susanna. You know that as well as I do, and I believe even John Tillman recognizes that uh, if he was being oh, as honest as he could be. And Bruce Reiner would have to do it as well. The issue is how are you going to raise the money you need to finance government? Uh, and um, the, some of the same forces who are joining Tillman in that lawsuit are vigorously fighting the fair tax initiative. Now, how important, in your humble opinion, uh, is the fair tax to the finances of the state of Illinois? Well, it's incredibly important. I mean, the reality of it is, is that when they passed the uh, flat tax, that was wrong back then, and we never corrected this wrong. This gives us an opportunity to correct and eliminate a utterly regressive tax, which is our current tax structure here in Illinois, that taxes everybody at the exact same rate, regardless of how much income they're bringing in. And therefore, the people at the highest ring of that, the highest tier of income, are paying the same percentage-wise of their income as somebody who barely makes ends meet. And, you know, I do think that the governor is absolutely right when he says that he should be paying more in taxes as a billionaire here in Illinois. It's about J.B. Pritzker, governor. Yes, mm-hmm. Governor Pritzker. The other governor, of course, doesn't want anyone touching his money. He just wants you to give up all of yours. Right. So frankly, um, you know, the fair tax is exactly that. It's saying that for 97 percent of the population in Illinois, you will either see your taxes stay the same that you currently pay today or pay less. Mm -hmm. You know, what is there not to like about that? So I get it that people don't trust government. They might feel like this is too good to be true, whatever it may be. But there's an actual constitutional change that has to happen. This is not an easy thing to do. It's not something that tomorrow they can just switch on you and and hit you with higher taxes. I mean, this is a massive constitutional amendment that the voters have to approve. And as a voter, forget about as a controller here, just as a citizen in Illinois that pays taxes, I would certainly rather pay less or pay the same as I am today than pay more. And I think you should too. So there's 3% of the population that is going to be upset about this. And even out of that 3%, not everybody is because people like uh, Governor Pritzker, are, you know, are, they're actually saying we should be paying more and they're not fighting this, this bill, but, or this, uh, this movement, right, this constitutional change. But the fact of the matter is there's not too many places that we can go to for additional revenue and passing a fair tax where 97% of Illinoisans will either see their taxes stay the same or be less will generate about $3 billion more in additional revenue for the state of Illinois. So I'd certainly rather ask the top tier that can afford to pay more to please do so to, you know, help us improve the state of Illinois. I mean, I really truly believe that those folks love this state too. They don't want to leave the state, but they want to know that their money is going to good investments. And we're asking them to be a part of the solution instead of just, you know, I don't like to to just say rich people are bad. They're not. There's amazing people that do wonderful things with their money to help our state, you know, develop and innovate and do things like that. Have a safer, a safer Chicago or a safer Illinois. And it's wealthy people who invest their dollars that way. We need their help as well. So don't fight us on something that for many years has really been something that's been unfair to the people who could least afford it. It's time for a fair tax. And 
I really hope that people come out and support well, that initiative. I'm sure we'll have many opportunities to talk about the fair tax initiative uh, before the November. It's not, it won't be on the ballot until November of 2020. Yeah, we're a long way away, but we're that is like the away. one bucket that will actually see the greatest amount of revenues come in. And it's also the bucket with the greatest amount of revenues that impacts the greatest amount of people in as least a way as possible. All right. So let's get to some of the buckets that will be filling up uh, immediately mm -hmm. as a result of initiatives passed, or excuse me, legislation passed in this last session. We'll start with the gas taxes. Uh, it's sure. been on my mind today. The Chicago Sun-Times had a story very cleverly titled uh, Border Pet Petrol. Get it? Border Petrol, like petrol, petroleum. Uh, they're clever headline writers here over here at my beloved bright one. Uh, in other words, Border Patrol is the pun. Anyway, all right, enough on the pun. All right, headline. if you had to explain it that long, then <laughs> maybe it wasn't so maybe clever. It wasn't as clever. All right, I mean, yeah, it's a valid point, Susanna. <laughs> anyway, uh, the, the the gist of the story is that um, motorists will be leaving Chicago to go into to Indiana to buy their gasoline because they want to avoid the gas tax. The purpose of the gas tax is to raise money for, among other things, to fix the roads that the people will be driving on to get out of Illinois uh, to avoid the tax. Some madness embedded in all that, Susanna. Uh, how much will the gas tax bring in and uh, what role will it serve in state government? So the gas tax, which of course no one is excited about or wants to necessarily pay it. I get it. I go to put gas in my car too. It doesn't get me excited to think about paying more as of yesterday, right? But the reality of it is, is that we have to kind of put this in perspective, maybe break it down into um, some reality checks here, right? Um People can, of course, cross the border and go to Indiana and maybe pay a little less. But what they should know is that Indiana actually has a higher gas tax than Illinois does, even with the increase in taxes. We used to only pay 19 cents a gallon um, for uh, taxes here in Illinois and the gas tax, whereas Indiana has been paying 43 cents a gallon uh, for their uh, gas tax. So ours, even at 38 cents, is still less than what Indiana pays um, today. Now, the other neighboring state that has a lower gas tax than us is uh, Wisconsin. And Wisconsin actually has their gas tax at 33 cents. So while we have had a gas tax of 19 cents a gallon for all these years, um, Wisconsin has had theirs at 33. So we're falling right in the middle, right? Five cents above Wisconsin, five cents under Indiana. Having said that, it still doesn't make anybody feel better, right? Like I'm just explaining the facts of what kind of people should know to put this in perspective, that this wasn't a number that was just kind of pulled out of thin air, I'm assuming, by the administration. That, though, is a critical need towards that $45 billion infrastructure capital plan that every voter, I think, in Illinois, no matter what party you're in, can agree that we don't want our roads to continue to get worse and worse and worse, which it feels like they are. Um, and while we can complain about paying more of a tax at the gas station, we should remember that pretty much every day we're paying in one way or another a hidden tax because when our cars blow out a tire because we hit a pothole, which happens all too often, not just in the city, but across the state of Illinois, that costs money to repair. And you don't think about it at the time as like, oh, this is kind of like a tax on bad roads, but it is. So that that expenditure, there's a study, it shows over $500 a year per average motorist in Illinois is is spent on either car repairs or um, lost wages from having to deal with your car being in the shop and having to either rent a vehicle or whatever it may be. And so you never really sit down and do the math or itemize each time you had to change something on your car or fix something. But essentially, it comes out to over about $500 a year, 
Whereas the increase in the gas tax on average is going to cost us about $100 more a year. So it may even be a cost savings if we're actually able to fix our roads and bridges. It's the best argument I can make for not feeling as bad about having to pay more at the pump. Um, again, I'm not excited about it either, but the, the, the one good thing about knowing where this tax is going is that you actually know where it's going. Every penny of it will go into a lockbox that can only, by, by law now, be utilized to, to pay for improvements in roads yeah, and bridges. A, I remember that referendum was on the ballot. Uh, yeah, and they had to pass year. that because you remember in the past, the legislature, or the governors, I should say, regardless of who they were, would sweep those funds. Um, and then, you know, the construction projects were coming to a halt because they didn't have any money sitting in this fund that's supposed to be theirs. That won't be the case moving forward. Well, there's a lot of cynicism on the part of people in Illinois. I've mentioned this many times uh, when it comes to new initiatives that are intended to raise money uh, for various things that everybody wants, like schools. People above, above a certain age, older than you, Susanna, uh, will say, what about the lottery? Because yeah, everybody remembers how the lottery was mm-hmm. intended to uh, supplement education money. And so why then do our property taxes have to keep going up or why do well, we they, have- they do just so you know, I always answer this question all the time. What yeah. about the lottery? Yeah. It's about $600 million, but you're talking about billions of dollars that go towards education. So yes, that $600 million is in fact still coming in, but it, it's like a, it's a blip on the radar of what's actually needed for education. So people should know that yes, the proceeds from lottery do in fact go to education, mm-hmm. But it's nowhere near enough. Illinois is still one of the worst funded states for carrying its fair share of the load when it comes to funding education. And if we ever get to the day where we do that, that's truly when people will see their property taxes uh, becomes much fairer in the process. Well, here's here's part of the problem. And we're going to get into the next initiative. Uh, I'm going to go down my list here, my cheat sheet. Uh, when th- again, this is way before your time. You're much younger than I am. But when the lottery was sold to people in Illinois, uh, it was specifically sold. They were assured that this was going to uh, help pay for education. And in people's mind, the promise they heard it was going to pay for education, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a, probably an overpromise or maybe it was an exaggeration on the part of the people who were, wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. Who knows? But uh, the reality, it, it it is just a blip in terms of what we need. That moves me to what uh, the marijuana tax. Uh, the next thing in my item with the state of Illinois has just decided uh, to legalize uh, recreational cannabis as Kelly Cassidy and Toy Hutchinson like to call it. I like to call it reefer. It's a generational thing. And uh, so uh, that starts uh, January 1st. And uh, I resisted Susanna up uh, I'm very much for the legalization of marijuana, but I resisted doing it for the the purpose of raising money. I think one more time, just like with the lottery, we're leading people to expect something that's not going to happen, and that is our state's finances will magically uh, improve themselves because of the revenue from of selling marijuana. Right. Uh, what will the reality be? Yeah, not even close. I mean, if you think that the lottery isn't meeting your expectations for funding, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, things, that's $600 million, right, that comes in. Uh, marijuana, even with the best projections for year one, we're looking at around $57 million. That's if it comes in on the projections. 
um, which some people might argue is underestimating and most people would argue might be overestimating, right? What we're going to see. But let's say it is $57 million. Now, 10% of those revenues are going to be dedicated for us to be able to pay down the bill backlog. So when you hear like millions of dollars, the controller's going to get 10%. It's like, whoa, that must be a lot of money. Because there are people out there, Ben, who really look me in the eye or they like troll me on Facebook and they're like, just pass marijuana, it'll solve all the state's problems. Uh, Not even close. Uh, $57 million, I get 10% of that. That's $5.7 million towards a 6.2 as of today, billion, 5.7 million to 6.2 billion dollar bill backlog. It's not even a rounding error. Do you see what I mean? This is like what I have to deal with every day. So yeah, sometimes it gets a little frustrating that people just like assume let's pass pot and you know, all our, all our financial problems go away. I mean, our problems do not go up in smoke. Bam. Just because we passed marijuana legalization. What, not is even the, close. what does the rest of the money go to? Well, it it goes to many different things. So there's like a re-entry program for recidivism and stuff like that. That's really important. I think that they get like 25% of those revenues. I believe some of that is also earmarked for pensions. Is that correct, Ebden? Um, uh, The marijuana, how they're dividing that up. I think, I think maybe it's 20 or 25% that gets thrown into pensions. Um, so it disappears right away. But my point is there's not much. So even if I got 10%, it's five point, even if they gave me all of it, $57 million, for a $6.2 billion backlog a year is it would take us, I'll be dead before we pay that down. So look, I'd rather have the money than not have it. I'm certainly not complaining about additional revenues, even if it's a dollar, but people need to be, you know, realistic about what the expectation should be. So, but I guarantee you that no matter what I just said, a year from now, people are going to say, we passed marijuana. Yeah. Why, haven't you, why haven't you paid down the bill backlog yet? Right? Yeah. It's just how it works. By the way, just a brief mention, uh, the Abdin uh, that Susanna Mendoza referred to, that alluded to, is uh, her press aide, Abdin Palish, who's look, who's sitting here looking very dapper, I might add, in a like a seersucker thing going down there. Is that what I that know, is? it's like he's in Louisiana or something, <laughs> he's right? right? He's yeah. Huey Long. <laughs> God, you look kind of like Broderick Crawford from that hey, movie. Hey, but you know what? I want to throw, I, can I do like a shout out to yeah. my... My, my guy Abden here. So Abden and Jim Derogaitis were like the first yes, two reporters were. to break the R. Kelly story like a hundred million years ago. Yes. <laughs> and Jim really stuck with it and he's yeah. written a book and he's done like amazing things. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we're at a point now where hopefully we'll see some justice for the victims of R. Kelly, but I'm so proud of him. Like he was, he used to work for the Sun Times. It was an investigative reporter and just really blew that story up with with Jim, and I think that's awesome. No, I think it is awesome. The young Abdon Powers. Look, let's give him a hand, round of applause. He's like, all right, all right, go back. (laughs) Everybody loves that. But anyway, nice suit, too. All right, now, uh, uh, but but going back to marijuana, folks, uh, yes, it's not going to solve our problems, and part of the reason people expect so much of it is that uh, instead of just uh, legalizing marijuana because the war on drugs is a complete utter failure and it's so unfair to lock up black people for something that white people do all the time. They had to come up with an explanation and the explanation is, well, revenue, it's going to be more money. And now yeah. as you're pointing out, it's like... It's not much. It's it, really like, it's not even a rounding error. But look, again, the bigger issue here though is regardless of that, even if you didn't want marijuana to be passed for the financials, you should be happy that from the the moral, the you know, the equity aspect of, of holding people accountable for laws that were broken in the past. I mean, they're going to correct that mistake now. And so many records are going to be expunged as they should have been years ago. And, and you know, 
whatever the the ends are here, how we got there is the the fact of the matter is is that that war on essentially black people is going to hopefully be coming to an end with the legalization of marijuana in that respect. There's not, we're not even close to being, you know, ending the war on, on all the injustices that have been done to the black community. But in this one little sliver, um, you know, we should see a ray of hope there. All right, now let's talk about the other big initiative, uh, the other big law uh, passed uh, just recently, and that has the, the expansion of gambling in the state of Illinois. What impact will that have on our budget situation? So if done correctly, and again, we're a long ways away from there, they just passed it, but then you see that right now, everyone's kind of scrambling to potentially make amendments to the law that was passed over veto session because um, you know there's a, a thought that you know maybe the taxes are too high for people to actually even want to own the licenses and I'm not saying that's my opinion. I just, this is some of the pushback that you're hearing right now. But, you know, realistically, you know, the the theory was that if done correctly, um, you know, gaming across the entire state of Illinois could raise anywhere from, you know, half a billion to maybe even a little bit more than that. Those are real revenues, right? So compared to the marijuana that you're talking about, maybe $100 million, $200 million probably at most, right, in any given year, um, you know, half a billion dollars is not chump change, Um but we're not there yet. Remember too, like when it comes to Chicago and, and the looming pension debt there, I mean, a casino license where you don't have any takers yet on a license is certainly not going to, you can't even borrow on a future license if you don't have someone who wants it. So <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's a difficult and you wouldn't see the yeah. revenues coming in from an actual physical casino for a few years. Right. So um, there's bigger issues at play that have to be dealt with, but you know, at the end of the day, I know you philosophically are opposed to, you know, expansion of gambling, but look, we're losing so much money to neighboring states. Gambling is in fact legal in Illinois. So if it weren't, that would be a much stronger, you know, battle to have in terms of a debate. But from my perspective, um, you know, we just need to make sure we get this right on whatever the final secret sauce is on on expanding gambling here in Illinois. Yeah, I, well, I yeah, you know, I do have a lot of uh, objections to the use of gambling. It's the most regressive form of tax. I just point this out. Uh, I, I would be more open minded toward opening more gambling casinos in uh, the state of Illinois if the gambling casino operators were a little um, how do I put this tolerant of people uh, who beat them at their game. One of the things that really irritates me. It's a minor point. Uh, uh, is that the gambling casinos are set up so that the gambling casinos win and right. that the people who come in there are suckers who are going to lose. But there are a few games where people who are really smart and can figure out uh, they card counters can beat the casinos. And guess what they do, Susanna? They won't let those people in the casinos. Right, right, <laughs> Okay, right. so uh, you want to expand in Illinois, let the card counters in there. I, just yeah. a small thing. Like even at the ads a little bit. Even out very yeah. little because to be a good card counter, it's hard. It's hard. It's yeah. yeah, it's like not many people would be good. Car- Maybe Abner Palish would be good you know, at it, but not normal people. My mom's like. a senior and she hasn't been to the casinos in a while, but she she really loved to just go there as entertainment value, right? She okay. wouldn't spend too much, but it was kind of fun for her to go hit the little video slots or whatever. And I go, Mom, why would you go do this? She goes, It's just it's the one place I willingly go to get robbed, and it's like because she knew she's going to lose her hundred dollars or whatever it is that she you know has to take a while to even get it. And then you go blow it at a casino and Uh, it breaks my heart. It does. But I listen, I have the same thing. I have a weakness for the track. I love the horses. And so I don't mind 
losing my money. You got to go with a limited amount. Yeah, you, you don't know, go it's, all nuts. It's like you, instead of going to a movie, you're going to see a beautiful horse run or right. something. Yeah. So in other words, going back to the, the financial aspect, it, we're not going to see a benefit from this until all these complexities uh, worked out. Worked out. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a while. Yeah, it's going to be a while. I mean, I was hoping that we would have owned the Chicago casino mm-hmm. license, right? Like, that was one of the things that I was talking about on the campaign trail because that would have allowed us, if we owned the license as a city, to be able to to borrow off of future revenues, yeah. right? Because you knew that you had full control of every aspect of it. But you know that didn't happen, and um, that makes. The fact that every municipality right now that has a license or that not they don't actually own the license, but that is entertaining expansion of gambling in their area. They don't have total control. And then there's all these other outlying factors from the investors who are saying, oh, the tax rate is too high for me, so I'm not going to invest. And they know that Illinois wants the revenue. Right. So they're actually in a very leveraged position. If you want to think about it. Yeah, no, that's whereas if the municipalities own the licenses. I don't care which municipality it is, right? Not just Chicago, but in Southern Illinois or in Lake County or wherever it may be, like you have a municipality that owns that license. They have more control of this environment. Uh, Absolutely. They got us by, well, you know where they got us by. All right. Now, um, one of the the stories uh, that was just broke today uh, was in the newspapers is that um, Mayor Lightfoot was hoping hoping that... um, Governor Pritzker would uh, assume more of the city's pension liability and uh, pick up the cost of the city's pension. And and he said, no, he couldn't do that uh, because the state of Illinois had its own pension issues. Of course. So what are those pension issues? That the state oh of my Illinois? gosh, that is the biggest problem that we have. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that proposal, while you know, you got to get points for creativity, like has to be dead on arrival. I mean, we cannot afford to take on any additional uh, unfunded pension liability. And when you're thinking about Chicago is pretty poorly off, but you know, that's why you ran for mayor to fix those problems. And it's not to give them to someone else to fix. And I would say the same for any mayor in any municipality, you know, you've got Harvey that would love to get rid of their pension debt, right? Yeah. Let's just give it to the state of Illinois. If you're East St. Louis, there's, there's cities that are worse off than Chicago and even worse off than the state. So from a, you know, if you're the governor, the last thing you'd want to do, I think, is to put anything to take on any additional burden that would absolutely impact your credit rating in a negative way. And without a doubt, that would. We're one notch above junk bond status. So we can't do anything that would even remotely give the markets any kind of skittishness. That wouldn't just give skittishness. That would be like, what? So, um, <laughs> no, I mean, that, that pretty much had to be done on arrival. But I think that to the governor's credit, you know, he wants to see how he can work with all the different municipalities who are facing similar burdens and see if there's anything that we can do as a state. There's no harm in, in looking at every possible tool or option that you have available to see if we can give some assistance of some sorts. Yeah. But, you know, to essentially asked to be bailed out entirely and include every other struggling municipality in that mix is just something that would never fly. Well, I guess you might as well try. You, you ran for mayor. Would you have tried it? No. <laughs> okay. I would not. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a dead and arrival thing. So you have to be realistic about those tools are that are available at your disposal. And unfortunately, as mayor, you have to make some tough calls. Well, maybe, and I hate to sound cynical and jaded, like a guy who's been covering Chicago politics since 1981, but maybe she knew that it was dead on arrival when she uh, announced it. So that gives her a little cover when she turns around and says, oh, well, I'm going to have to uh, raise service 
taxes to pay off the pension liability. Ever think about it? Sure. I mean, it's possible. I mean, anything is possible. And um, I do think you need to look at cutting internally before you even start asking people to pay more, right? So there are plenty of places in the city that you can cut. Now, that doesn't mean that by any means get you, you're not going to ever have cuts that would do anything to actually plug a hole in the city's budget. But it's this concept that you can't really go back to taxpayers and ask them to pay more when they haven't seen anything visibly reduced on your end. So I'm sure she's going to focus on that. I, I can't imagine she would go back to taxpayers and ask for more without looking internally first and seeing where they can trim or tighten their belt. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a painful ride. And I think everyone who ran for mayor knew that. Yeah, you ran for mayor. Uh, what's your thoughts on Lori Lightfoot's, what's it, first two months? How do you think she's I think doing? it's fun to watch. I, I do. I think she's she's uh, come out really hard for things that I cared about too, like uh, getting rid of aldermanic prerogative. I don't think she should back down on that for a second. And I know that it's upset every single alderman in that chamber, <laughs> but you know, she won yeah. with 75% of the vote. So as far as I'm concerned, she has a mandate. And she should not take, she should take full advantage of it. And every day that goes by, right, you lose a little bit of that if you're not taking action on those things that you said you were going to do. So I think she's come out really strong out of the gate uh, when it comes to things like that. And um, and I've enjoyed watching her uh, in her first and second city council meetings. It's been fun. Yeah, spar with them. Yeah, she's, she's tough. You know, she's smart. She's tough. And I think the trick is to surround yourself by really good people that have a strong understanding of what's happening in city government and very importantly in state government. And I think that's where, you know, that's that's not a strong point. Are, are you finding yourself with each passing day a missing Rahm Emanuel? Uh, not really. No. I mean, I just like I, I don't. I, I haven't really given it much thought, you know, I, I want to, I want her to succeed and I truly, you know, I'm not a BSer, so I just tell, I wouldn't say anything. <laughs> I, I do want her to succeed because yeah. I love this city. Yeah. Right. And I, I want whoever the mayor is, I wanted Rom to succeed. Yeah. I did. Um, I wanted every mayor in my lifetime since I've been in Chicago and that would have been daily for most of us. Right. And then Rom, and of course now Mayor Lightfoot. So I hope they do succeed, but it's it's a tough job. You don't run for mayor of Chicago to win a prize. All right, Susanna, before I let you get out the door, I gotta talk some national politics. Uh, in addition to being uh, the controller, you also follow politics a little bit and you yeah. must be following this presidential race. Mm -hmm. uh, it is like this fundamental issue that we face as a country, in my humble opinion, uh, evicting Donald Trump from office. It's on uh, so many levels. It's, in my opinion, it's so important to do so. And um, what's your early sense of how things are going for the Democrats? We've already, last week we had our first debates uh, and we're just sort of sifting through who the front runners. We're not quite sure who the front runners. Well, how, what's your general sense of where this election is heading right now? Well, it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's a free for all yet, but I think a lot of the candidates, people don't know who they are yet. You know, it kind of reminds me of the mayoral race. He had 14 people running for office, and it's really hard to find that lane that you could break through and get the attention of the public. I think uh, Kamala, from, you know, what we saw or what people have heard in the, the last uh, debate, found that spot. And she'd been working on it for a while, right? Because as soon as that debate was over, they had T-shirts. And so this was not, this wasn't like a spontaneous little thing. And some people critique that. And I say, good for her. You know, I mean, she, she knew that she had to go hard at the front runner, which is Joe Biden. And she had to, she had to clearly differentiate herself from all the other candidates and not be afraid to do that. And, mm -hmm. and she, she clearly did. Um, you've seen other bright spots. Julian Castro had a, was like the, the, the winner. I don't know if the winner, but he probably gained the most from 
that first debate because no one ever would have thought to give him a second thought. And then he kind of shined in that debate compared to others. And he raised like triple the amount of money in the one day after that debate than he had ever raised. Right. So people are talking about him, whereas two weeks ago, nobody was talking about him. Right. And uh, there's other names like Kristen Gillibrand and uh, Pete Buttigieg. Right. Um, There's really good talent in this pool of presidential um, candidates right now. And of course, Biden, who is in the lead. But um, I think all those things are going to change over the next few months, right? Like right now, who you think might be the front runner, I don't necessarily think will be the front runner down the road. At the end of the day, the question here is who can beat Trump? And that's really my biggest concern is who can actually beat Donald Trump? Because we cannot afford another four years of Donald Trump. Well, so in other words, do you think that's the governing uh that most voters in the Democratic primary are the same way. They're not even voting on a, uh, they're not voting on a plan. They're not voting on a policy. So they're voting on who they think the candidate most likely to be Donald Trump is. Well, I, I can't speak for all Democrats, but I mean, I'm kind of hoping that we can consolidate behind a candidate that can actually beat the front row. Because look, we have a lot of good choices, right? All those names that I mentioned and, you know, Bernie Sanders is in the mix too, but there's, there's a, Although he does not really, is, is I don't know. I don't want to get down that road because I think he, he's, is he running as a Democrat? Uh, Bernie? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. he's running in the Democratic primary. I right, okay. I can, I, my guess is you were a Hillary Clinton supporter in 2016. I was. I was a Hillary. No, but I, I mean, I still like Bernie. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not... <laughs> poking at Bernie. I'm like legitimately asking because yeah, no, I had heard yeah. that maybe he wasn't going to or whatever. Well, so, he did say the other day he let off the possibility that he could, might not necessarily back uh, the person who won, got the nomination, which I could only assume he didn't specify would mean um, Joe Biden because I can't imagine any other person who's even a, remotely a front runner that he would Okay, but like I'm just back. saying like with all due respect, I mean we have to get behind whoever wins that nomination. That is ridiculous to be running for president and say that you won't support, I don't care who it is, if they're a Democrat and they're the one that has a face off against Donald Trump. I would support that chair over there <laughs> before supporting Donald Trump. So my point is like, this is like the country yeah. is on the line, right? So whoever the nominee is, even if it's not the candidate that I might get behind if I decide to get behind somebody, whoever our nominee is that wins, that's who we're getting behind because, you know, we have to take our place in history here and right the wrong that was committed in 2016. All right, I agree with you on that point. Now, something else, I'd love to get your political opinions on this, and that has to do with healthcare. Um, there are people come on the show, we talk about this all the time, who say, Ben, don't push too hard for uh, single payer, Medicare for all, whatever you want to call it, because uh, people, that means people who like their private insurance would have to give up their private insurance, and they may be tempted to vote for Donald Trump just because they don't want to give up their private insurance. This is a uh, this is a school of thought that some uh, folks have. What's your reaction to that? Well, look, I mean, I think healthcare should be a right and not a, not a privilege. And I I think you know healthcare should be a thing that transcends political parties too. I mean, anyone who is living and breathing and aware of their surroundings wants to be healthy. And if you want to take it one step ahead, anyone who has someone that they love. They don't care what party they're in. They just want to make sure that they have access to quality health care. Um, health care is one of those issues that unfortunately has become like one of these issues like abortion or gay rights were, you know, years ago, gay rights today, abortion, right? Which is asinine that we're still, you know, having to fight to protect women's rights here in this state. But it's become almost like this third rail issue that people don't want to talk about because somehow it's been politicized, you know, and that's just disgusting to me. Um, 
you know, human beings deserve to have access to quality health care. I've been touring hospitals across the state of Illinois talking about managed care organizations, right? You get into all the bureaucracy of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And in Illinois, years ago, we used to just directly pay providers of healthcare services with Medicaid. We don't do that anymore. 10 years ago, we moved to a managed care organization plan, which is actually like an HMO. Now, did you ever meet anybody who actually liked their HMO? <laughs> I'll get inside. Like nobody likes their HMOs. That's why they yeah. got rid of HMOs. Yeah. And anyway, they rebranded it kind <laughs> yeah. of into this MCO, okay. which is kind of sort of the same in terms of like lackluster performance. And Illinois, 10 years ago, we went down this MCO route where we're going to, instead of providing the payments directly to the providers, they were supposed to cut through all that, streamline that, provide better services at lower cost to taxpayers. And that we started off with a $250 million pilot program Mm -hmm. where we're paying $250 million of all Medicaid costs are going to these managed care organizations who are supposed to manage the care, right? Supposed to be better service, less cost. Well, 10 years later, that $250 million pilot program is now a $14 billion Mm -hmm. program just here in Illinois. And I don't have any visibility on $14 billion of taxpayer funds once they leave my office and go to the managed care organizations. So now managed care organizations that were consolidated under Bruce Rauner, by the way, against like my wishes and a whole lot of other people's, um, now they get paid by me on an expedited basis, right? The minute I get Medicare bills in, I essentially prioritize them. And I've told you many times I prioritize on a, with a moral compass, right? We want to take care of sick people. Mm-hmm. So I get those dollars out the door faster than any controller in the history of this state does. But guess what? Those MCOs sit on those dollars and they're not getting to the frontline providers that I'm trying to pay. And that is like tragic. I mean, 14, I, I get calls every day from providers saying, controller, do you have any idea when I'm going to get paid for X invoices? And I'll say, well, I already paid that two months ago or three months ago. And it's sitting at the MCO level at the managed care organization, which in other words, a big insurance company. Yeah. And here's the other tragic thing, uh, Ben, which I don't know if you know this, but a hospital that contracts with an MCO, let's say it's, uh, I'll just throw out a name, Alina Care or County Care, or you probably read stories about County Care this last week, um, uh, Meridian, uh, Aetna, like big names, right? Blue Cross Blue Shield in the past. So... When they contract with a hospital on the Medicaid side, the part that the state pays, their denial rate on average is 26%. They're denying 26% of claims that are legitimately submitted to them. Whereas that same insurance company is denying 2% of the non-state related healthcare um, uh, you know, requests for services. So there's a whole lot of, of craziness that's happening or just, I, I just think there's no accountability. So when you ask me a question of where do you stand on the issue of, of, of healthcare, I, I would just say this, I think everybody deserves to have a right to healthcare, but I also think we have to get it right because we've tried to, for example, utilize the system that serves all, uh, people of lesser means, but they're also getting substandard care from our own state. Not because we're wanting to give them that care that way, but because we pay billions of dollars to big insurance companies that are not accountable for how they're spending our tax dollars. This is going to become my new Bruce Rauner issue. I'm telling you, remember how I used to go after him hard and wanted accountability and transparency? We need that on how we're actually providing healthcare services to the people in our own state. And state by state, you're seeing different examples of how, you know, this, this, um, 
these uh, state payments are, there's no visibility on them. And, and that means people are dying. At the end of the day, what does that mean? It doesn't mean better service at less cost. It means more dead people and no accountability. And I'm not okay with that. So look, everybody deserves to have the healthcare that they want. And people, if you want to have your doctor, you should be able to keep your doctor. And at the end of the day, that's the system that we have to build. Yeah. I, uh, I, I why can't a, we have both? I, I, I don't understand why we... we I, first of all, I do believe we can't have both. I think it's a, a false choice. and uh, But it's what... When we, when we head into this campaign season, uh, it will be... That choice will be the one presented. And it'll be some powerful voices pushing that, particularly the Republican Party. The notion that if you come up with a, uh, more, uh, a public option or a single payer plan, that'll be requiring people to give up their private insurance and give up their doctors. And they're going to try to scare people on this issue into voting for Donald Trump. I see that happening already. And uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts about how you can present that politically to disarm Donald Trump, you know, uh, to try to take that away for the Republicans or is she just just what assure people that they can continue with their private plans i think we should elect a president who will make a commitment that everyone will have access to quality health care and if you want if you like your company that you're with and you love your doctor that you'll still be able to keep that i mean why is that so hard the beauty of legislation is that you can craft whatever the heck you want and then it's your job to actually work your tail off and convince other people as to why this makes sense and get the votes that you need to pass it. And we as voters should hold our Congress people accountable and our senators to listen to what we want and not have them work out some deals in the back door. Real simple. Everybody deserves health care. If you love your doctor, you can keep them. All right. Fair enough. End of story. All right. Now, uh, I gave this uh, quote for you to read and love to get the response to it. I've been asking people who've come into the studio about this one all day. It's from a column written by a gentleman named Brett Stevens in the New York Times, a conservative writer. And this, in his response to the Democratic uh, debate, where many of the Democratic candidates spoke in Spanish, uh, the, the first debate in particular, they spoke in Spanish just to show that A, they could speak some Spanish, and B, to show they had some sympathy uh, for folks who were been, been locked away in detention centers. Uh, as a result of Donald Trump's immigration policy. Uh, Brett Stevens was outraged by that. And uh, he uh, wrote, uh, in last week's Democratic debates, it wasn't just individual candidates who presented themselves to the public. It was also the party. It's a party that makes too many Americans feel like strangers in their own country. A party that puts more of its faith and invests more of its efforts in them, italicize them, instead of us. They speak Spanish, we don't. They are not U.S. citizens or legal residents. We are. They broke the rules to get into this country. We didn't. They pay few or no taxes. We already pay most of those taxes. They're willing, they willingly got themselves into debt. We're asking to write it off. They don't pay the premiums for private health insurance. We're supposed to give ours up to ex in exchange for some VA-type nightmare. They didn't start enterprises that create employment and drive innovation. We're expected to join the candidates into de demonizing the job creators, breaking up their businesses and taxing them to the hilt. What's your response? ¿Quién es este ignorante que no sabe lo que está hablando? I said, who's this ignorant person who has no idea what he's talking about? I mean, look, I, I can't, my mom said, if I can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all, right? But at the end of the day, 
I I think it's just ignorance at play. It's this fear mongering. It's, you know, I don't even know essentially who cares who this guy is, right? I care more about the people who are working every single day trying to make a difference in this country. My mom and dad were the very people that he's talking about. And they're two of the hardest working, most amazing people I've ever met in my life who gave me the the example of what an incredibly hard work work ethic is, who taught me how to love this country as my own. I was born here. And I remember once asking my mom, who is from Mexico, like, what if we went to war against Mexico? Who am I supposed to fight for? And she goes, for this country, you're an American. We're Americans now. We're here and we love this country. We love our, my mom, I'll always love my my home country, but this is our home now and we're Americans. And that's what makes this country great. So the very fact that my parents contributed way more to this country than actually they ever received in return, they've never taken a penny from the government. They've worked two or three jobs to put a roof over our head and explained us how lucky we were to have access to good quality education. And, you know, I did the very best with an opportunity, a tiny one that they were given by being allowed to be here because at one point they were able to become legal U.S. residents and citizens, right? But everybody deserves to have that opportunity, especially when they're risking their lives to leave a country where their family is there and their language is there. They're literally risking their lives. Some of them don't make it to get here, whether they're coming from Cuba or they're coming from over the Rio Grande or through the desert. And until you've walked a day in those people's shoes, do not pretend you know what it's like to be them. And honestly, this guy isn't worthy of shining my father's shoes, but he has the power of the pen to go ahead and, you know, essentially spread that type of ignorance and hate, you know, whatever. You you just can't spend your time uh, thinking about that or letting that get under your skin. You just keep moving forward. And as I tell the immigrant community, you know, I'm thankful that I live in a city that for the most part welcomes them and that I have a little part in hoping to be able to stand up and protect them. All right, that is Susanna Mendoza speaking, uh, and uh, that's about a good place to end this as uh, as any, because I agree wholeheartedly with you on that last reaction to Mr. Brett Stevens, who... Uh, my, how many entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have you met that are immigrants that started with nothing and built like these amazing businesses that are hiring tons of people? And guess what? Those people get deported tomorrow under this president. And, and he's going to say that they don't add any value. And guess what? Last time I checked, when you're going to buy groceries at the grocery store, they're not asking immigrants for their green cards. They just want their green cash. And they're paying the same taxes that you and I are paying. So absurdity and just a whole bunch of misinformation that's being spread there. It's yeah. easy to believe all the bad stuff. You yeah. never want to challenge yourself to believe that you might be wrong. And a lot of hatred as well. Uh, Suzanne Mendoza, it's always a blast to have you on. We're going to, uh, once a month, make it uh, a regular... This has been the Mendoza Report. <laughs> now I'm all fired up and mad. I'm like, ah. Thanks, Susanna. All right, thanks, guys. All right, that's <laughs> Susanna Mendoza. Bye-bye. I'm Ben Jarofsky. See you soon.